Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing, for the first time, Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, a novel we've been circling that's been discussed for a long time. It gets brought up and, you know lists that people wanted us to do and it gets requested and all that and has for a long time. And here we are coming to the end of summer and we're going to conclude summer with the picture of Dorian Gray, which somehow feels right. First though, Tim, you are back and it's good to see your face on the zoom. Good to hear your voice in my headphones. It's good to have you back on the show. It's been, it's been a few months. It has been, it's been four as a matter of fact, because I think, well, maybe more than that, because I stopped before Arden was born Maybe a month mm. before Arden was born, so maybe it's been five months. Is that possible? Because Arden's four wow. months now. You had, I guess. I guess we've seen you because you right. you were at the event last weekend, close race on the road. You were at the retreat. Um, you were at the Cersei conference, so you haven't been on the show. But we've seen each other three other, times, other than in person. Okay. Right. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, the listeners will confirm that. But Tim, it's great to have you back. Thank you. It's nice to be back. And Heidi, how are things going for you? I'm old news. I'm doing just fine. <laughs> You've been here. Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, we're here to talk about the picture of Dorian Gray, as I said. And this is this is one of the more, well, I was going to say controversial, but maybe infamous. I guess it's controversial, uh, at least in its time. Yeah, infamous books uh, written in the last 130, 40 years, something like that. It's by Oscar Wilde, of course. It was originally published as a uh, novella-length novel, um, which I guess they call a novella, um, in July of 1890, before ultimately being published as a book, a little bit longer version, in April of 1891. Do you guys know the story behind the creation of this, like the scenario that led to its being created? Tell us. So uh, the magazine that it was published in as a novella was called Lippincott's Monthly Magazine. And the editor or an editor of that magazine was a man named J.M. Stoddard. And he would travel around and meet with writers to try to get people to write novellas in the magazine. You know, back when magazines were, you know, this huge uh, way that people read fiction back before, you know, it was a little harder to get books then, especially for the average person. And so novellas and short stories were published in these magazines and it was like the, the a literary incubator. And Lippincott's was a big one. And in 1889, Stoddart met with Oscar Wilde, T.P. Gill, who's uh, another, another writer, and then uh, very famously, Arthur Conan Doyle at the Langham Hotel. And he basically asked all three of them to write a novella for the, for the magazine. Um, within like a couple of months, Arthur Conan Doyle gave them The Sign of the Four, which is one of the most famous of the Sherlock Holmes novellas. And then uh, it took a while longer, but Dorian, uh, Dorian Gray was what Oscar Wilde contributed. So that's uh, like that meeting led to one of the great Sherlock Holmes stories and to an Oscar Wilde novel that we're still reading today. So pretty good lunch meeting there, I would say. What What was the other, who's the other party that was involved? Okay, so his name is T.P. Gill. And he, what did TP produce? You know, it doesn't say here. My my uh, my uh, internet research does not show what it was that he specifically produced based on that meeting. Um, I can tell you though that he was a uh, he was educated at Trinity College Dublin, and he became a journalist. And then he was a member of Parliament. So he produced must have produced something that was um, less memorable, such that Wikipedia and the other sites decided. 
Eh, we'll just leave that one alone. T.P. Gill. Yeah. It's a very famous origin story for a novel up there with um, with the origin story for Frankenstein. Right. And and it's kind of this similar era. Right. With these big flamboyant authors with these big lives and all of this Mm -hmm. drama and everything happening in the public square and uh, writing and creating this art that. That's right. It's controversial and flamboyant to this day. Okay, so the word controversy, I'm sure we're going to talk about that a bunch. Heidi, have you read, how many times have you read this? Uh, this is only my third time reading it. And Tim? Second time. I think this is only my second time as well. And I haven't read it in many a year. I think probably the last time I read it, if you take the number of years ago that I read it, uh, Dorian Gray himself probably would not have been born in that <laughs> amount of time because I think I read it when I was a teenager. <laughs> so... In these first three chapters, which is what we're going to discuss this week, we get introduced to a, uh, you know, our kind of core characters, Harry, Basil, who's the painter, and then Dorian Gray, who obviously has the painting made of him, as well as a couple of other upper crust English, you know, uh, aristocrats and their various uh, friends and servants and family members. It's got a bit of a uh, Woodhouse vibe, in fact, in term, in the way the characters are presented. Um, but what I'm, what I want to discuss quickly is when you look at this book, like say you just look at Wikipedia, it's going to be described as a philosophical novel. And I was reading it, as I was reading this first two chapters, I kept thinking, oh, this is what I would call a novel of ideas, which I guess is another way of putting a philosophical novel, but in a less hoity-toity way. I, I don't know. Um, do you... So, in what way do you think... I'm just going to ask this generally before we get into the, the specific of this book. Tim, as a former philosophy professor, uh, <laughs> uh, what do you... How do you see this book as a uh, novel of philosophy or a philosophical novel? Uh, deliberately shallow? How's that? I mean... That, that's your assessment of it as a philosophy... Yeah. Of the philosophy in it? Yeah. Vapid, maybe? Yeah, but very intentionally vapid. I I kind of think that this book, it's hard to read this book independent of its, independent of the era that it's in. Now, we could say Mm -hmm. that about every single book in the world of all time, but this book, the kind of philosophy that it puts forward seems so much like an extremely talented young person who just is sick to death and feels bound up by kind of the adult world and has just had enough. And so I I find the philosophy to be not terribly serious. Like no one says, ah, yes, the thriving school of decadent philosophy they've got a great program over at cal berkeley for that like nobody thinks that (laughs) but that doesn't mean that it's just sort of like worthy of being dismissed i think it's a kind of counterpoint philosophy to english aristocratic society which had become incredibly um i would say i think kind of stifling boring um, and pretty rigid. And I think mm. Oscar Wilde is kind of like, had enough, had enough. I don't mm. fit in in this society. I'm going to try to do something different. But like what he puts forward as a difference, I think one of the big questions of the novel is like, are we, 
how seriously were we meant to take this? Mm -hmm. The idea is that the characters present as virtuous or worth um, moving towards. Are they actually, does the novel actually think they're worth moving towards? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the things that they espouse, are we meant to think, yeah, we're meant to adopt this philosophy? Okay, so I, I think we're going to try to answer that question over these episodes. I don't think we can answer it in the first episode. But Heidi, when you look at this book and the ideas that it's presenting as, you know, as an awful of ideas, what ideas do you think um, are most compellingly discussed? Like if we were making a list of ideas that we think, oh, this is, these are the ones that I find the way that the book approaches it most interesting. These are the ones that I would, I would put on my list. I mean, here's David is asking about a list again, but I think it's helpful to kind of get some of this stuff out there so then we can figure out, we can kind of narrow in on what we want to, what we think the book is really trying to do. Right. It's a good question. And I think an important question, as Tim said, I think, Tim, I think you're exactly right that this is a novel that uh, is, it, it stands alone. You can read it without its historical context, but it's better with its historical context. Uh, and as Oscar Wilde, and I actually think this is a novel that lends itself to biographical criticism in a mm. really uh, useful and fruitful way, whereas some other novels really don't. Um, Oscar Wilde could be a character in one of his own novels. He has this flamboyance to him. Uh, mm -hmm. He has also a lot of inner torment and um, he's like a classic Enneagram four, right? Uh, and always trying to find himself and make himself big in any given space. Uh, he tended to dominate a room and the cultural landscape. He was very famous in his time uh, and he, it for good and for ill. Um, mm. He had a really interesting life uh, and a sad one, right? Um, yeah. And his, so this novel as Tim said, it is a reaction against Victorian moralism, uh, not only on a, in a moral sense, but also in an aesthetic sense. It represents and is the novel of a movement within art called aestheticism, which is very different from asceticism. <laughs> um, yeah. um, and like refers, the opposite of asceticism. Yes, exa that's exactly right. Um, yes. Um, in fact, I think Harry in this book basically says asceticism is bad. Yeah. And well, like, he's exactly. And Harry is representative of aestheticism. Um, right. He's a hedonist. He gives his entire philosophy uh, within this first section of reading. Mm -hmm. um, and we, uh, so I think that that's one of the things that we need to know. The question of art with a capital A. Um, aestheticism is often known by its slogan, art for art's sake. And the prologue of this novel, which was written after the original novella, which was slandered by the critics and, and Oscar Wilde was pilloried for it, for its moral depravity. And he, um, or its alleged moral depravity. And that and was it, with the editor taking out 500 and words. And he rewrote this novel. Yeah. He rewrote his original novel, took out a lot of homoerotic references and a lot of things that were um, objectionable um, and rewrote it. And it's, this is the novel that we have today is a much mitigated form. Um, and it raises the question, is art for art's sake good? Which is more important, beauty or genius? That's given to us in the first part. How does mm -hmm. a novel, uh, how 
how seriously ought art with a capital A to take morality? Um, and does it denigrate art to be, to make some kind of moral case? Like he was reacting against authors like Charles Dickens, who wrote his not who wrote novels in order to provoke a moral response and humanitarian response um, and an activist response. And he didn't like that. He thought it was a misuse of art. Um, I think another thing that's raised is the question of influence. Um, he, Harry, Lord Harry makes the, um, makes the case to Dorian Gray that influence is bad, um, and that a person ought to be fully himself, um, in, and then later on, Harry finds a kind of seductive pleasure in influencing Dorian anyway, and we're going to see that continue. So that is another question raised by the novel, and then the question of beauty what is beauty what is the nature of beauty what ought beauty to be can beauty uh can aesthetic beauty be divorced from moral beauty um and if so what are the consequences of that so normally we wouldn't i wouldn't just ask a question like what are the ideas of the book but this is one of those books that like to be honest in these three chapters very little action happens and what really happens is a bunch of characters talk about ideas that they care about and so the book's kind of laying all that out there, you know, right in front of us. Um, most, of and the, so, most of the action has to do with lounging. Right, exactly. This, yeah. Lord this is a big lounge book. Yeah. yeah. At it, least he it is a cigarette. Yes, it's the Beautiful flower rooms bedecked and, yes. rooms and lounging. Used, so Oscar world. Wilde used to give lectures in America on interior design. I, this seems like the perfect opportunity to say what his rumored last words were. Go on. He apparently was at war with the wallpaper in the room that he died in in Paris. And it's said that his last words were, either this wallpaper goes or I go. <laughs> he's a funny guy, that Oscar Wilde. <laughs> and it kind of fits Oscar. Like if he's, he, he's not going really like, to say pass the salt. his last words. Actually, I don't. Of course, I want his last words to be, I repent. But... Instead, <laughs> if, if this is it, it's a great story. <laughs> so do you guys think, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to ask this, this, this question. Do you think this is a good novel? I do. I think it is a good novel. As a novel. Yeah. You do? I okay. do. Yeah. I think it has so some flaws as a novel, but I think it's a good novel. Tim raised his eyes to the heavens. <laughs> And sighed. So as I started rereading it, I started asking that question. Mm -hmm, I was too. like, I mean, it's a famous novel and it's worthy of being done on close reads. And Oscar Wilde is an incredible writer. The importance of being earnest has stood the test of time, no doubt. It's a great play. This book, I don't know that it's a good novel. I don't think it's a bad novel. Let's just take that off the table. But sometimes it just feels like a petulant diatribe sometimes. You know, like sometimes Lord Henry comes up with these quips and they're meant to be, I think, a little bit shocking. Mm -hmm. Um. <laughs> But you kind of dig into them a little bit and you're kind of like, there's nothing to that but cuteness. 
I think, you know, whereas somebody, yeah, it's like, it's prose and it's kind of ornamental and it's, um, apparently paradoxical. Yeah. Aesthetically pleasing, but it's so different than like GK Chesterton. This is maybe an unfair comparison. The king of paradox, GK Chesterton, when GK Chesterton puts a paradox together, you're like, wow, that's really profound. You know, there's something, two things are happening simultaneously and Mm -hmm. both are true and they are in tension with each other. Uh, You know, like because Chesterton is taking the gospel as his kind of like blueprint for paradox. To gain one's life, one must lose one's life. And you're like, yeah, that's true. That's true. I see how both those things can be true in the same sense. But with Lord Henry, I'm like, you know, it's like, I'm really banging on this guy. I shouldn't be doing this so early, but it's like, in order to be old, one must become young. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, sure. Sure, Lord yeah. Henry, okay. And and it's things like that. I'm like, I, I just don't find them particularly compelling. I find them kind of quippy, but not particularly compelling. Don't you think that's the point? He's the devil figure. He's Mephistopheles. The point but, is that he is corrupting that he's the voice of corruption in the novel so he's his his profundity is supposed to be empty it's supposed to be seductive it's supposed to have no substance to it but i think that i think that nietzsche is also a great paradoxical writer and i read nietzsche and i'm like dang that's like there's something there. There's something substantial there. I think there. you're bringing up a, a super valid point. And and Oscar Wilde gets his style is I'm going to use a phrase that was used to describe the style of gentlemen in Moscow. It's relentlessly charming. Like it it's mm. exhaustingly charming. Like you read it and you're <laughs> like, okay, like it was really it was funny at first, and now it's just getting. Like it's tiring out my mind and pressing me beyond how charming I'm willing to to take how much charm I'm willing to take yeah. in, and yeah. and Woodhouse doesn't do that. Um, right, right. That's right. another great so comparison. I think that his style is is it's way too much, um, and like a bit campy, a bit campy, a lot of frosting, not a lot of cake. Mm. That sounds fine to me. Uh, but the, um, as far as cake goes, yeah, every the, kid um, listening to this is like, and the problem is Macintosh. Yeah, I don't know how many kids are listening to us talk about the picture of Dorian Gray, but at least a couple. Don't in their let mom's your car. kids listen to this. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, do we need to, I guess, do we need to put that out there the, before this series? Yes. So the Woodhouse thing is interesting because I, I actually think that they're quite similar. And in some ways, Woodhouse, I think he kind of does do what, Oscar Wilde does here, but the difference is that when he writes and has Bertie Wooster or someone from Blanding's Castle or someone say similar things to what Perry says or or even Dorian Gray say or any other character in this book, we are it is un, we have an understanding with our writer that what they are saying is absurd, and so when he presents it in that format, it's we have a we have we have sort of entered a contract with the writer. And when we hear Harry or Basil or Dorian Gray, whoever in this book, we don't necessarily have that contract yet mm-hmm. with Oscar Wilde. We don't have that Agreed. relationship yet. That's and so we are it. trying to understand 
what he what he actually intends us to think. And part of the reason I think that that is difficult is because of the way he uses the narrator. I'm, I've been fascinated by that in this book through the first two chapters. Agreed. Because there's extensive sections where we don't have any narration. We don't have anybody besides the our interlocutors, so to speak. Um, almost like it's a play, and we know, you know, he he wrote plays too. Um, and so we'll get these long conversations where people are suggesting, oh, this is a paradox. This is a paradox. Oh, you are so wise. Oh, you're wise, but awful. You know, all these different things that they're saying to each other and assessing each other's uh, ideas. But without the narrator stepping in to tell us this person is right and this person is wrong. And I think that without the narrator giving us, orienting us, we are left to fend for ourselves intellectually, so to speak. And I think that that creates an interesting experience for the reader because at times as you say, his purple prose is quite pleasant, you know? Maybe it's violet instead of instead of too purple. You know, I, I opened the book for the first time, in, after reading it for the first time in what, 18 or 20 years or something, and I thought, and I didn't have an appreciation for it at the time, but I read those first few pages and I thought, man, the guy can write a sentence or two. Mm-hmm. But then the sentences start to run together and you're not as, and, and, and they begin to insist upon themselves as we were, a phrase we used <laughs> in conversation, uh, Last weekend on Close Foods on the Road, and I think at times he 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 le- he starts to insist. The book it starts to insist upon itself too much, and it's hard to know is that purposeful or is Oscar Wilde getting carried away with the ideas that he cares about? Um, and what I can't figure out is is the book an exploration of the ideas that he that he's discussing, or is it a thesis? So is he is he exploring paradoxes, so to speak? Or is or a way of looking at the world, or is he and, and being contemplative in doing that, or is he telling us that one way is right? And I don't think that the narrator reveals that to us very clearly. And so, because of that, we are left to live in that that gray area, which can make for both an interesting reading and experience, and a little bit of a frustrating one. Um, do you think, Heidi, that he makes that clear, or am I? Am I am I essentially right in what I'm kind of my assessment of it? I think you're right, and I think he as as we go as we go which deeper, was a, which was a way of as, yeah. asking that question that Harry would have asked it. Yeah, am I right, <laughs> Heidi? Am I right? Can you tell me that I'm right, please? Uh, right, I think that Oscar <laughs> Wilde needs a lot of validation. Um, uh, I I think that you're right. I like the way you you phrase that as the terms that the novelist is setting with its audience. Um, and I, I think with Woodhouse, he, anything serious in Woodhouse is subtext, right? Um, we, and interpretive, um, Mm -hmm. and, but Oscar Wilde takes himself very seriously and yet he couches it in this very funny, and this is maybe another, bringing us to another theme in the novel, which is, which I didn't mention before, um, which I think is this, the superficiality of, of culture, right? Especially English aristocratic culture. Um, And he, he's bringing that to the forefront, but at the same time, he seems to undermine his own point by talking about the importance of beauty right with a capital b and 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 oscar wilde i get the same feeling Os- reading oscar wilde that i get watching a christopher nolan movie they're very different artists but the same kind of 
the same feeling of here comes this creator who is giving us this story that seems to promote a certain idea, but at the, but he doesn't actually want it to be true. He doesn't really believe it, right? Which is an accusation that's continually leveled against Lord Harry, who is very much like Oscar Wilde himself, if you read about Oscar Wilde. Um, and and so I think what whenever I read Oscar Wilde, I get this sense of this man who wants there to be a moral center in the world, or actually says he doesn't want there to be a moral center, art for art's sake, just beauty, right? The only thing that matters is beauty, all the things that that Lord Harry is saying, but then gives us a story that elevates something much deeper than that. And I think we're mm-hmm. going to see that in us, in Dorian Gray. And so I, I don't, I don't know if I think that Oscar Wilde believes his own BS. Like all the things I think that you're saying, Tim, are right about Lord Harry. His There's not a lot of substance to him. And we're even told in this section by another character that he lives a very tame life. He actually is like, he doesn't do anything particularly like wicked, but he goes out and talks about it hmm. as being this kind of important, like moral stand, you know, it's some kind of moral stand to be immoral, right? But then he lives a very moral, stayed, settled life. It's just mm-hmm. words, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think, David, you're exactly right. And I I think that Oscar Wilde is just as confused about it as we are. And I think that works in the novel. I think it makes it better. Mm-hmm. Have you guys heard how he described the three characters in relation to himself? No. He, he said that Basil is who I am. Harry's who people think of me and Dorian Gray is who I want to be, <laughs> which is interesting. And that's where you see the, the, um, the biographical criticism comes into it, Heidi. Like he talked a lot about, and the, you know, about how these characters are relate to him, but that also there's been a lot of stuff done on, um, who these characters are meant to be based on, on him in real life. Like he based them on, uh, friends of his too. So when we, when we look at that, Heidi, um, I think Tim, I'll come back to you in a second, or you can just jump in too. But when, when thinking, when adding in the biographical criticism part of it, how do you, well, how do you add that into the questions of, um, of whether he believes what he said? Like, do you think that, um, that is something that, that needs to be brought into a conversation with a book like this? Mm. Like, can think, the, in other words, can I, can I rephrase the question just a yeah. little bit and give you a chance to think? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, can the book... Okay. Add, to the, add this to that question. If, it, if, it, if we have to bring in the biographical criticism to it, how does that color our conversation about the merit of the novel as a novel? As it, opposed to just yeah. a book about ideas. That's really yeah. kind of what I'm wondering about. So I think that... The bad way to do biographical criticism, the what I think is not even interesting, that's super boring and just bad. <laughs> um, a bad way to do his, uh, biographical criticism is to say, what does the book tell us about its author? And I don't want to do that. I think that's boring. Um, what does the author's life tell us about the book is a little bit more interesting. Uh, I think what's important to know in with in the conversation about Dorian Gray is that Oscar Wilde was both extremely famous and also just relentlessly judged for his 
homosexuality, um, which happened later in life. And uh, he was married with children, actually, um, and said he was no longer attracted to his wife. And he found a male lover who seduced him. And then that became a regular part of his lifestyle. And then he went through a public trial. um, And that was just like a celebrity. I mean, we all know these trials that have happened in our in our time. And um, and like, just think of like the Johnny Depp trial, right? Like, that's what it was like. Um, and, uh, and he, he claimed that he, uh, that he was trying to return to the Greek classical era, right? Like he just said it was actually a sign of cultural refinement that he had younger male lovers because that showed his like aesthetic pursuit of, of beauty with a capital B the way that the Greeks saw it. Um, and so he didn't see it as an indulgence of physical lust as much as he saw it as part of his pursuit of kind of a pure asceticism. Mm. And and I think that that is useful or fruitful in understanding that's how he saw it and looking at both the homoeroticism of this book and the moral trajectory of all of its characters. Because mm. if knowing that, then we have very interesting dissonance that's created with the trajectory of this story and the philosophy it claims to be promoting. I think that's a great way of thinking about like, how do we talk about the biography of Oscar Wilde in this book, Heidi, because like the three of us are kind of committed in a lot of ways to not reading a book through the author or the author through the book. We just think Mm -hmm. that's, not a benevolent let, let critical the book be move. Its yeah, re- let the book be its thing. Now, sometimes we get pinched in certain places, like there's certain interpretive problems that we come up against, and we might lean toward the author and say, like, "Hey, if you could whisper in our ear, based on your biography, what might you say to us?" So, but but that's kind of when we get stuck. But this book, it does seem like it's an occasion to say you know what, we might need to lean into the biography a little bit more for what's going on. And I think that your explanation about how and why Heidi was great, spot on. Thanks, Tim. Nice to have Tim back. uh, I know. Being encouraging. Tim, so you kind of, you've said so far that you're not sure that it is great as a novel and that you think at least some of the ideas are vapid. Well, I use the word vapid, but yeah. um, So where do you see, why why do you think this book has lasted and where do you see the the merit in these first three chapters? Again, there's a lot, the book evolves and it changes and there's things we're going to talk about later that we're not going to talk about now. So we're kind of looking at this bird's eye view and then just in these first three chapters. So based on what we have read so far, where do you think the real literary merit of this book is such that it has lasted 130 years and um, has gained, has, you know, has maintained a reputation that that makes it worth discussing. I think what Dorian Gray faces in the first couple of chapters of the book, like the realization that his beauty is going to fade and that he's going to go the way of all mortal flesh, I think is something that we all have to deal with at some point or another. Mm-hmm. And I think that is this book dwells on that in a 
in a really interesting way. It's funny because you guys are too young probably to have this experience, but I look back on my life and I see certain friends of mine who in our 20s, they, oh my gosh, they were so enjoyable to be around and full of life and they were beautiful people. And now, a couple decades later, I kind of think, what happened? Some, somewhere along the way, something kind of went sideways and they're not where they want to be right now, you know? Hmm. Um, I think with Dorian Gray, it happens during a conversation. This kind of like realization comes rushing forward. I am young. I will one day be old. I will one day be withered. What's to become of me? I don't want this to happen. But I think for most of us, that happens slowly. And it does not happen in a sudden crystalline understanding. It happens kind of maybe when your body starts breaking down or when you look in the mirror and you're like, gosh, I've got a lot more gray than I did, you know, two years ago or something like that. So it happens more gradually. I think this novel really shines a light on a particularly dawning realization that happens in a moment for Dorian Gray. Hmm. And it happens because he sees a representation of himself, yeah. like an idealized representation of himself in which he is told by the artist that he is an embodiment of yeah. beauty with a capital B, right? Yeah. I have made like Basil's in love with him, right? In the in in the artistic sense. Like, and actually I think just as a little caveat here aside, I think it's a mistake to read the relationship between these three men as, as purely homoerotic. There's clearly some overlays of that, but it's much more about the, um, it's, it's much more about the seduction of art and beauty than it is about a personal or fleshly one. It's an aesthetic lust, not a physical one. And it's as, and, and Basil's enamored by uh by Dorian as an embodiment of beauty and and I like I really think it works so well one of the greatest choices I think is to make Dorian Gray a man and not a woman um, I was just about to yeah. ask this yes because it forces us to see the relationship um as 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 either deviant sexuality or as at least within the cultural context of the time and i like or as um as as what i'm claiming like that it has much more to do with the yeah. ideas the disembodied from the flesh kind of lust the ascetic lust um well, cuz dorian is clearly an ingenue but if he's a woman that makes him it changes the whole conversation and puts it in the realm of the flesh whereas i think that now we have this idea of the how they are in love with him as an idea or or a projection of their of themselves, which Basil says, he says that directly, like I'm in love with him as a projection of my own genius as an artist. He is an mm. idol. I worshiping myself in this painting. And at the same mm. time, Dorian, it's a very complex, um, like interpretive, uh, 
move. Cluster storm, right? Like it has oh, all of snow, these, yeah. Like, yeah. like all of these threads um, on the personal and on the artistic level um, hmm. that that I think are very complex and very intentional um, and, 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 you know, well worth meditating on. And it's, he, he's creating like a really difficult scenario for himself. Like it's a different, difficult thing to pull off because mm-hmm. whether, whether it's just a relationship of ideas or it's according to the, like he's writing to people who would have viewed it as deviant sexuality, either way, that's an uphill climb for a novelist to create pathos. Like whether you're just like, this is about ideas or it's about something that is rejected by the society, you're asking people to accept something that like, it's going to be very complex work to make, to pull that off. Go ahead, Tim. I was just going to say making Dorian Gray male does kind of remove the possibility, despite the homoerotic overtones, which are there, mm-hmm. it does remove the possibility of sort of like sexual conquest being the object of this book. As you can imagine books like um, Age of Innocence is a little bit about that. Or the play, do you guys know the play? Um, oh, goodness. Dangerous Liaisons. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. About, you know, it happens in this society, um, though in France, and it's about a kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of a bet that an older seducer makes with his female consort that he can seduce this younger woman and he ends up falling in love with her. But the picture of Dorian Gray kind of takes that off the table as a possibility for the motives of the of the characters and so it does become not about conquest. It comes it becomes about beauty, pure beauty, age, purity, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Can, can I say what, what I think this book might be doing rather than rather than a book of ideas? I think it Absolutely, it's a book of ideas. And I appreciate, David, that you brought it up to begin with because I think even in the first chapter, our two of our three main characters are discussing and debating what, you know, philosophical ideals and aesthetic ideals. And, and I find their, um, their philosophy to be shallow. Mm-hmm. However, yeah. The more that I read it, the more I think what I do think is kind of sophisticated about the book is that it's not seeking to give a really robust, rigorous, analytical answer to these dilemmas. It's really not trying to do that. It's maybe trying to do the opposite. Mm -hmm. But what I do find really appealing about it is that it's kind of, instead of a philosophical answer, it's giving a pose, right? It's giving a sort of stance. Mm -hmm. Like the world that the the British aristocracy um, kind of believes in doing things in this tried and true way. The blue book has all of the names of the landed gentry. Um, yeah. And what I am going to do, says Lord Henry, is I'm going to be clever, but more than anything else, I'm going to kind of stand in a certain way. I'm going to hold my chin in a certain way. I'm going to speak in a certain Lounge. way. What'd you say? 
You're going to lounge I'm going to, in I'm going to lounge in a certain way. And really, it's all about the pose. And and we've seen this before in art. Like, I think a really good example is punk. Punk music in the late 60s mm. and the early 70s. Mm. If you listen to punk music, it's terrible. I mean, it is terrible to listen to. It just batters your eardrum. But I think punk music, part of the reason it was so powerful is because less than being like a philosophy of just kind of like, you know, anarchy in the USA, it was more sort of like, I'm taking mm. a stance. I'm yeah. I'm figuring into a pose. And this pose is my response to something that I find just like horrible and sort of deathly and mm. I don't really know what the counter answer is, but this I is do know that I'm going to stand in this certain way. I'm going to like I'm going to cock my hips in this certain way, and I'm going to stick my chin in the air in this certain way, and that's going to be my answer. Kind of like deal with that pose. It's interesting because in a way, and I see you getting ready to unmute yourself there, Heidi. In a way, punk music also has like if you read the lyrics to the Sex Pistols or something, it's not like they're not, they're kind of shallow, right? Right. Like they're not getting a lot across. They're just part of like the whole aura, right? The whole ethos of it, and that ethos becomes the stance. Heidi, go ahead. I think that's right. I I think that that is right. I don't think that the book is going to advocate that stance, though. Hmm. I I think that that's that's the whole inner torment of Wilde coming out in his books. Like Mm. that Lord Henry is, he taps into a very deep um, and actually, frankly, largely lost, except among specialists, um, cultural icon, like a mythological story, which is the story of Faust, right? That, that, Dr. Faustus sells his soul to the devil. And and then that there comes a point when the soul is required of him. And the and Lord Henry is the Mephistophelian figure here. We actually have the real deal with the devil in the section that we read. I would give up everything. Yeah. I would sell my soul if the picture could be, if I could. Be, stay as beautiful as the picture portrays me forever. And that happens mm. after hearing the drivel that is coming out of Lord Henry's mouth. Mm. And we see the moment of seduction. We see him bite the apple, right? When he's standing up there and, and Basil is telling him to leave. I want you to leave. Please don't corrupt Dorian. Right? Mm. I am afraid of the consequences if you talk to him. And then... Dorian stays, excuse me, then Lord Henry stays in the room and he gives his pitch, his in his pitch that says, you should be exactly who you are, right? Don't let anybody influence you. And then, and, and then that is what, what actually happens is that he becomes the primary influence. He seduces Dorian. And then Dorian says, I would give anything at all to remain as beautiful as you're saying this. I'm going to lose my beauty. Now I'm afraid of that. I'll do anything you want. And then that's like, so I don't think we're supposed to believe hmm. Lord Henry. I don't think that so, he is preaching any truth at all. And I think that he's charming and seductive, but the devil. You don't so think Tim, we're supposed to believe you, him at the beginning? 
I think we're supposed to be charmed by him at the beginning. And I think at the dinner, I think that's the purpose of the scene at the dinner party is we see all of these people who are being ridiculed both by the narrator and by Lord Henry and who who are like, who should disapprove of him, but they don't. They end up inviting him over, right? Come to my house and drink some old Burgundy with me, right? Yeah, Which, yeah. by the way, I'd love to do. But that is... That we see how he seduces everybody in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the interesting thing is, okay. Well, let clear, Tim. Let me clarify. Let me ask a clarifying question to yeah. what you were saying, because I want to see how it tracks with what Heidi's saying. When you say that it's a stance, do you mean that the book itself, as an artifact from Wild, is Wild's stance, or that the characters are I offering think- a stance? The book is Wild Stance, and I think most it's, of... It's, it's his punk album. It's his punk album, that's right. Okay, okay, and I think okay. most of what Lord Henry says is a pose. I, I don't mean that it's just a total nonsense. Um, right. But I do think it's just kind of like... Let me read one section that I think might be the kind of like most substantial part of it. And I think that the section that I'm about to read was read by the prosecutor in Oscar Wilde's trial. Mm. Um, so for me, it's on page 19. I'm not absolutely sure that this is the section that the prosecutor read, but I know that a section was read, and this is the one that makes the most sense to me that he might have read. So um, second paragraph in the second sentence in the last paragraph This is uh, Lord Henry talking. I believe that if one man were to live out his life fully and completely, were to give form to every feeling, expression to every thought, reality to every dream, I believe that the world would gain such a fresh impulse of joy that we would forget all the maladies of medievalism and return to the Hellenic idea, to something finer, richer than the Hellenic ideal, it may be. But the bravest man amongst us is afraid of himself. The mutilation of the savage has its tragic survival in the self-denial that mars our lives. We are punished for our refusals. Every impulse that we strive to strangle broods in the mind and poisons us. The body sins once and and has done with its sin, for action is a mode of purification. Nothing remains then but the recollection of a pleasure or the luxury of regret. The only way to rid to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it, resist it, and your soul grows sick with longing for the things it has forbidden to itself, with a desire for what its monstrous laws have made monstrous and unlawful. It has been said that the great events of the world take place in the brain. It is in the brain and the brain only, that the great sins of the world take place also. You, Mr. Gray, you yourself with your rose-red youth and your rose-white boyhood, you have had passions that have made you afraid, thoughts that have filled you with terror, daydreams and sleeping dreams, whose mere memory might stain your cheeks with shame. Okay, like, great. We see where you're going, Lord Henry. It's um, like, don't just, you know, crush your impulses, but, you know, be willing to live them out. And I think I could frame that argument in such a way to be like, man, if you're too bottled up with kind of like 
doing one's duty, Heidi, then I can totally imagine just the, the pure sublimation of any sort of like desire. I can see that being like absolutely like soul crushing. But as a standalone philosophy, it needs its counterpoint or it's just vapid, right? Mm. Just give in to every impulse. Really? This is a life philosophy. I can't, it just doesn't seem like and it's he, substantial enough to, to really take it seriously. It needs a counterpoint. It needs okay. something like if this is desire, it needs duty yeah. as its counterpoint. So then are you saying that if we're looking at the quality of the book, that the book is flawed because it doesn't offer the counterpoint? As a counterbalance, or Heidi, are you saying that the books, like what we're going to read later on, actually does offer the counterpoint? I think that the book absolutely names the problem of what Tim is the, that Tim is bringing up. the The book tells us what happens to someone who gives into every desire and, and and displays no evidence of it. Okay, and then, but then, so then, Tim, your question is: Does, does it do it, more than does uh, it offer, offer a meaningful yeah. counterpoint? I mean that. That is that is one of my primary questions for the book. Well, okay. then let's discuss. Yeah, let's, yeah, that's something we can be trying to orient our, our discussion yeah. towards. Yeah. Um, he has that fascinating line Henry does about suffering, where it's like, suffering is. I don't have any sympathy for suffering. Yeah, suffering's the worst possible thing, and all that. Um, which he just you know sounds if you, like the devil, doesn't he? He's just so Mephistophelian. Yeah, there's screw. It's like screw tape or something. Um. Okay, we're at an hour, at least of our recording time. So why don't we go ahead and um, try to think if there's anything else we need to cover um, in this first episode because things things do play out <laughs> that we will have to discuss that we can't talk about until they happen and that limits our ability to discuss the ideas too deeply. So we talked about the, the, the pros, which at times maybe feels a little uh, overwrought. Maybe it insists upon itself, but it's also quite quite brilliant at times. Uh, like he was quite gifted at, you know, using the English language in a, in a aesthetically pleasing way. Um, Heidi, what else do you think he does really well? Like when we're trying to look at, we've talked, we've talked about some possible criticisms. What are some other things that he does as a counterpoint to those criticisms that make this book uh, really, uh, really interesting? I think he does. I think he's great at scene making. And I think that the scenes that he gives us create this really interesting and complex um, aesthetic experience. And I think a meaningful, uh, Tim, I think you're right. What I'm about to say, I don't know how to phrase it because he is, I don't think he's anti-intellectual, but he does not think that, that writing should, he, he doesn't want to create an intellectual experience. He wants to create an aesthetic experience. He wants us to respond to the beauty of the story and of the writing. And so he crams it full of all these illusions, you know, like the, mm. like the Mephistopheles one, the Faust one. And, and, and he wants us to respond to the illusions within this new kind of story. Right. Um, and so he is trying to create an aesthetic experience. Um, and I think he does that really well. And I think he does a great job of raising complex questions about the nature of art um, and the connection of morality with art, which seems to be very troubling to him 
for a different reason than it was to to a Victorian moralist like Charles Dickens. The problem for Charles Dickens was that people were not responding morally to Mm. his stories, right? He wanted to give us all these stories so that we would go out and do something about the problems in society, right? And, um, And Oscar Wilde doesn't want to do that. Right. He doesn't want to create activists. He wants art for art's sake. But the, I think the problem he runs into is that you can't actually divorce beauty from goodness. It's impossible to do that, which he should know because he's a classicist. Um, and <laughs> the Greeks believed that beauty and goodness were entirely unified. Um, and, and, um, and Oscar Wilde seems to be trying to disentangle them, those two things from each other and say, how can I create something just purely beautiful, um, without having to worry about goodness? And I don't think he can do it. And I think that bothers him. And I think that's interesting for me to read about whether or not he would say he succeeded. I don't care. I think I'm interested in the fact that he's trying and can't. And I think he does that well, even Mm. though he doesn't want to. (laughs) I am thinking he's a classicist. Nietzsche also, I'm going to bring up Nietzsche for the second time. Is He um, sounds like Nietzsche sometimes. He does. And Nietzsche has to kind of make a move. He's he's smart enough to know that like the three transcendentals, which have always been believed to cohere together, truth, goodness, and beauty, really they have to be separated for Nietzsche. Like truth and goodness – don't necessarily cohere together and beauty and truth don't necessarily go together. So there's a kind of breaking of the cohesion of the three transcendentals in both of those, uh, both of those authors. Mm. This is already a good conversation, guys. Um, That's why I think it's a good book. As I think it raises great conversations. It really I've never does. had a bad conversation about this book. Yeah, it really does. Tim, what were you going to say before I, I asked that? I had something and I completely forgot it. And I'm going to, as soon as we end the podcast, I'm going to be like, oh no. Sorry, we started opening our mouths at the same time. No, no, no. It, it, it's just my forgetfulness. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody but me. Okay. Um, do you, anything else you want to add? Any other final thoughts? Anything, well, what are you, anything you're looking towards here in, in this next section? I think plot and character wise, I think we're just meant to be curious what is going to happen to Dorian Gray. Yeah. Yeah. And which of these two, <laughs> it's funny word to use in the this cultural moment, which of these two influencers uh, <laughs> is he going to follow, right? They're already fighting over him. And, um, and what are going to be the consequences yeah. of that? And what's the deal with the picture of Dorian Gray? You know, Which it's is funny. Kind you, of like everybody knows that, but still, it's worth exploring how that happens. You use the word influencers, and you say it's kind of funny, but on the other hand, it's also like super appropriate because it's some totally. of the, like the the things that you think about when you think about influencers and the problem of influence culture are not unlike some of the things that this book brings up as problems or mm-hmm. reveals totally as problems agree, as well. Because so. that's the the same contradiction that Henry brings up, like the same profound break, which is telling Dorian, just be yourself, right? But actually just do whatever I want to tell you. And that's the problem with the influencer culture. It's so everyone's saying, just be yourself. And then they're saying, but do it this way. And yeah. it's actually be a yourself, pretty vapid social and self-destructive way. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. And then they're also like this notion of like, you know, trying to be eternally an influencer. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, all right. Well, this has been a good conversation. Um, we will be back next week with the next block of chapters. And then um, 
we'll do this book for the next few weeks. And uh, just don't forget that over on Close Reads HQ, we are also discussing uh, That Hideous Strength. Those conversations have been really great. And that that is a really good book. So um, if you've read it recently or are reading along, uh, please check out those episodes. Um, lots of great content over at Close Reads HQ. We just did our movie adaptations draft and we're going to do some one-off episodes like that every now and then just to um, give people some content if they you know aren't able to keep up with the reading every week. Um, and uh, I think that's about it for now. Anything else either, either you want to add? Any, anything you want to promote? Talk about anything? Next yeah. week. Well, when does this come out? It comes out Mo- Monday, It comes out right? Monday. Okay, yeah. so next Tuesday, the 15th, I am doing a webinar over at the Circe Institute on Shakespeare and gender identity. And I'm really excited about it. And I would love to have any, if if anybody's free at 4.30 p.m. EST next Tuesday, which is tomorrow for you listeners, go ahead to over to um, CirceInstitute.com and sign up for my webinar. I'd love to have you there. That sounds very interesting. Influencer, Heidi, influencer. Be yourself. Actually, just be like Shakespeare. That's what you should do. Don't be like me. That's a wonderful segue to, I'm going to give a little plug to The Play's The Thing, my podcast on all things Shakespeare. We just finished Shakespeare's least popular play according to the British public. I won't tell you what it is, but I encourage you to go wherever you download podcast the plays the thing and listen to the discussion, which might, oh, I started to say something really sacrilegious, which might, which might be better than the play. It's not a great play. This is so exciting. So, um, and if you're teaching Shakespeare this year, a lot of the major plays you've already covered there, Tim. So if you're teaching Hamlet, say, or I don't know, whatever play, much to do about nothing, whatever it is, you might be teaching this year Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, the things that show up on the syllabi. Then uh, there's like five episodes, five to six hours of help in the in those in that podcast that plays the thing. So it's great. We are great getting con- great we content. Will finish all 37 plays. My goal is to finish it in the 2023 calendar year. We are getting hmm. very close. Then you can make the box set. Yeah, yeah I can make the, the podcast, podcast box set. Oh, huge demand. Yeah. Huge demand. <laughs> Uh, you could make a t-shirt that says I listen to all, all uh, every episode or something you know like the, the project is done I've listened to them all I don't know something um, we'll, we'll, we'll workshop these ideas that we don't have yet um, alright guys thanks so much for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh I'm David Kern thanks did it freeze there? yeah no it did oh, oh it shoot. did it oh did. I thought okay. he deliberately paused no no no, no. <laughs> just it felt like thanks it, period they were freezing <laughs> Uh, For Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. 